Hey folks, welcome to The Sacred Speaks. My name is John Price and I'm your host. First, if you're listening to this on audio, The Sacred Speaks has long been living on audio. And thank you. Continue to like or share wherever you find it on any of the podcast affiliates. I have now been looking at doing video, so The Sacred Speaks has started a YouTube channel. There are a few episodes out already. If you are listening, please jump over to YouTube, check it out, subscribe to the pages. If you are watching this, thank you, welcome. It's a new process. Subscribe to the page and like what you can. Thank you. Uh, today's conversation is an extension of a conversation that I started a long time ago, but really in episode 61 with Brian Murescu. Brian's book, Immortality Key, is catching fire. He's on the New York Times bestseller list. What he does is explore the original, the roots of psychedelics or entheogens and religion and religious um, ritual and, and rite of passage and sacrament, uh, the sacraments that were used in these religious ceremonies. And through my conversation with him, he has done a fantastic uh, favor of pointing me in the direction of a lot of other folks who've been looking at these subjects. So now I'm going to talk to one of the OGs in the world of psychedelics and the clinical ac and its clinical application, Dr. William Richards. Dr. William Richards began his exploration of psychedelics in the 60s. He's been around this turf for a long time. And certainly he's been around the clinical study of these substances for a clinical process. So I have been very excited to speak with him and read his book, Sacred Knowledge. Check it out. Uh, it's a very good evaluation. And it, it, um, he's just got such fantastic words and has a, a depth of experience in this territory. Uh, if anybody's interested in um, the, the psychedelic re renaissance and what we're experiencing now with the, um, certainly with the data that's coming back on psychedelics and its clinical application, this is a fantastic book to read. Uh, so again, Brian Murescu, uh, he's somebody you should check out. Look him up at brianmurescu.com. Um, also, uh, I want to talk about this, The Sacred Speaks. If you're new to The Sacred Speaks, check it out at thesacredspeaks.com. Plenty of information on the website. Uh, any of these resources are available in the liner notes down below or, um, or, or attached to any of the uh, podcast pages. I do want to talk about the sponsor. The Sacred Speaks is sponsored by the Center for the Healing Arts and Sciences. It's a boutique integrative practice that my wife, Leela Scott Price, and I started many years ago. Check it out at thecenterforhas.com. Again, resource below. And also, uh, Modern Nations. Modern Nations has participated in the Sacred Speaks by way of contributing a song to the theme music. And I'm always grateful to uh, those fellas. Thanks, guys. I'm back to the center. The center's also got a really cool YouTube page where all the clinicians come together and talk about topics that some are challenging, some are interesting, we think. We think they're all interesting, actually. Um, but they, they range in topics from early development, uh, parenting, um, the, the ways that Eastern medicine and acupuncture can be used to in the process of healing. Um, but it's a fun, engaging conversation with a bunch of different clinicians from different perspectives. Uh, who come together as often as we can, and we provide that material for you. So check that out too at the Center for the Healing Arts and Sciences. Um, just get on YouTube and search that, and you'll find our page. Uh, what else? Is there anything else? Yeah, oh yeah. Uh, on top of the resources, check out Johns Hopkins. They have a ton, and, and again, in the resource page, they have a ton of uh, information online 
Um, but certainly they've been the leaders in uh, looking at consciousness and psychedelics. So if you're curious at all, follow that thread. You can look them up at hopkinspsychedelic.org. Uh, and of course, down below, you'll see um, Dr. Richards and I talk about all the clinical trials that are currently underway. The FDA is looking at, there are about 60 of them currently um, at cl clinicaltrials.gov. Um, and the last thing I'll say is that I have a class coming up at the Young Center starting in April. It's late April, around the 27th. I'm going to loosely base the class on Brian Murescu's book, The Immortality Key. So check it out at younghouston, J-U-N-G-Houston.org. Um, the link to the class will be below. And Brian's going to come in to the class on the third class uh, to answer questions for folks that are participating. So thanks for being here. Uh, thanks for checking out The Sacred Speaks. And for now, we'll leave it there. Dr. Richards, welcome. I want to read through your bio real quick, and then we will get started because I got a lot of questions, and I I hope we will, uh, and I know we'll certainly go off book and get into a lot more than my questions. So first of all, Dr. William Richards is a psychologist and research affiliate. Bill is a psychologist in the psychiatric department, excuse me, Bill is a psychologist in the psychiatry department of Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, Bayview Medical Center, a consultant trainer at sites of psychedelic research internationally, a teacher in the program of psychedelic therapy and research at the California Institute of Integral Studies, and also a clinician in private practice in Baltimore. His graduate degrees include a Master's of Divinity from Yale Divinity School, a Master's in Sacred Theology from Andover Newton Theological School, and a PhD from Catholic University, as well as studies with Abraham Maslow at Brandeis University, with Hans Karl Lunar at Georg August University of, in Germany, where his involvement with psilocybin research originated in 1963. From 1967 to 1977, he pursued psychotherapy research with LSD, DPT, MDA, and psilocybin at the Maryland Psychiatric Research Center, including protocols designed to investigate the promise of psychedelic substances in the treatment of alcoholism, depression, narcotic addiction, and the psychological distress associated with terminal cancer, and also their use in the training of religious and mental health professionals. From 1977 to 81, he was a member of the psychology faculty at Antioch University in Maryland. In 1999, at Johns Hopkins, he and Roland Griffiths launched the rebirth of psilocybin research after a 22-year period of dormancy in the United States. His publications began in 1966 with Implications of LSD and Experimental Mysticism, co-authored with Walter Punky. His book, Sacred Knowledge, Psychedelics and Religious Experience, was released in English by Columbia University Press in 2015 and has since been translated into four languages. Bill, there's your book. What a wonderful read. Great stuff, man. Well, thank you for arranging the time. You and I have a couple of connections, including uh, Brian Mubarescu and Jeff Kripal, all these networks combining. And I'm really grateful that they have connected me with you, your universe, because it seems that your universe is precisely where I want to be. And we'll, we'll unpack that in a little bit. But first, I wonder if you could start with biography, uh, because I have been eager, when I really think about what it is I'm interested in learning and connecting with you about, it's primarily 
well, many things, but your lineage, you've, you've been involved in this landscape for a long time, and all of a sudden, it's growing and exponentially. So if we could just start with your, your interest, your biography, your interest in psilocybin and psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy, uh, and also just the landscape of the political, social, sociological, um, certainly religious landscape of psychedelics and, um, and mysticism in human beings. Boy, we're not going to run out of material, John. Never, never. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how far back do you want, do you want me to start biographically? <laughs> yeah, I think that uh, if any stories come to mind, Bill, I certainly want, I, I, I find myself always being interested why people are into the things they're into. Uh, of course, some people feel a little bit protective, understandably so, about their own personal content. So I want to be conscientious and respectful of how much you're willing to share, but I'm certainly interested wherever you want to start. I mean, you've made a lifetime out of this. Well, if we begin with the psychedelic chapter, say, you know, I, I had already uh, studied philosophy and sociology and psychology and music and uh, <clears throat> psychology of religion and comparative religion and uh, clinical psychology, so on. And um, I was at the University of Göttingen in Germany, as I describe in my book, uh, in 1963. And the uh, clinic around the corner from my dormitory uh, had the psychiatry department and they were experimenting with some new drug called psilocybin that I had never heard of. And they were looking for student research volunteers. Um, at that point, I hadn't heard the word psychedelic. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what psilocybin was. But they told me it was a new drug that might give me some insight into early childhood. I might relive some things from the first few years of my life. And that sounded interesting. I was, you know, writing down my dreams in the morning and, uh, you know, trying to uh, view my own mind as kind of a laboratory of... Uh, knowledge in psychiatry and spirituality. So anyway, I volunteered and they um, led me to a little basement room. And uh, I remember it had a little cot and an end table and a little narrow window looking out over the hospital garbage cans. <laughs> and they gave There's me no metaphors yeah. there, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> and they gave me an injection of psilocybin and left me alone. You know, uh, this was <laughs> before the days of supportive set and setting were recognized, and there were no plants, there was no music, uh, there was nothing. Uh, but anyway, I believe that uh, God would be with me if any uh, insights into my Oedipal complex were going to. Well, you know, and so I lie there, I lay down, I was just kind of open uh, to see what might happen. Uh, uh, Preference, two of my friends had volunteered before, 
and one had experienced him sitting in his father's lap. Mm. And his father was killed during World War II. And that was very meaningful to him. And the other had seen visions of SS men marching in the streets uh, that he called a hallucination. Mm -hmm. And I thought, gee, I've never seen a hallucination. Uh, This sounds interesting. (laughs) Maybe I'll see one, you know. So (laughs) anyway, there I was kind of open and trusting and totally naive. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, heck, we were all 23 once, you know? Right. Uh, and um, to my amazement, I, I started seeing this network of uh, exquisitely beautiful geometric patterns, uh, multidimensional. And then it almost seemed like there was energy flowing through those patterns, uh, like electrons and wires. And I could somehow enter into those. And uh, all of a sudden, uh, the best I can put it into words was that um, I was seeing imagery like Islamic architecture, Islamic script. uh, And then it's like my consciousness all of a sudden felt outside of time as if I could even look back on history. And um, there was love and beauty and harmony and beauty and peace and this feeling I've been here before and I forgot it. You know, what mystics kind of call homecoming, you know, waking up, enlightenment, whatever you want to call it. And um, in the midst of all that, uh, the research assistant came into the room to check my knee reflexes. And he asked me to sit on the end edge of the couch and he hit my patellar tendons with his little hammer and wrote down his notes. And I remember sitting there with my arms outstretched feeling what I later call compassion for the infancy of science. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the feeling they had no idea of the profundity, uh, the potential significance of what was going on, you know? And um, uh, I returned to normal. I went back to my dormitory room uh, I lay on the floor prostate with awe. And uh, I became known then as that interesting American student who had the mystical experience Mm -hmm. because they were using very low dosage at that time. And most people were just having uh, experiences of mental imagery, childhood memories, uh, sometimes paranoia, panic. And it was in the days where they thought these drugs would help us understand psychosis, that they would trigger a model psychosis. So that was the expectation. And uh, whether I went so deeply because uh, 
I was close to such an experience spontaneously, or I was just so insecure in a new country, in a new language, and under a lot of stress, I'll never know. Uh, but in many ways, the rest of my life has been kind of footnotes to that experience. Mm-hmm. It, it certainly awakened me to uh, the power of uh, psychedelics and the mystery of the human mind and the interface uh, within consciousness with what we might call uh, spirituality or the spiritual dimension. And um, so I started guiding English-speaking people through sessions in the clinic in Germany where psychedelics were still legal, you know? And I've been guiding people ever since, you know? So what do you mean when you say guiding people? What was that like then? Yeah, just providing interpersonal grounding support, um, a better and better therapy as I learned more about what I was doing. Uh, I remember one of the first uh, people I attempted to guide in Germany was a theological student, and he kind of turned away from me and wouldn't communicate with me during the period of drug action. And at the end, he said that, he said, the Habeas geschafft. I made it. And I said, well, what's been going on? He said, well, there's this, there was this big vortex trying to draw me down into the depths of the ocean. And I spent the whole time swimming valiantly against it. And it never got me. <laughs> and I realized that he had totally missed out on the opportunities of the day. You know, but I didn't know any better then, and he didn't know any better, you know. <laughs> so he fought off the opportunity to uh, dive into the depths of his mind, you know. I, I'm glad you brought that story up because in your book, in the margin, that story got a little drawing because I, I have I rank order how I talk to myself in the margin. You know, I might get a a check or a star, I might underline something. But if I draw a little a drawing, that was a significant thing. And uh, this this narrative is powerful. And it yeah. reminds me of that, something I'm taking with me forever in your book, that motto of in and through. And in and through, right. Even if it's in and through suffering. Yes. You, know, you don't run away from it. You dive into it as fast as you can. Yeah. Yeah, because so I'm coming at this from not only a, a kind of a curious student sitting at the feet of a of a man who's uh, accumulated a lot of wisdom through his experience, but I'm also a psychotherapist, and I one of the reasons why I'm so attracted to psychedelic studies or um, or certainly psychedelic assisted psychotherapy is because I keep bumping up against certain limitations in psychotherapy. And I think that the realm of psychedelics is an incredibly potent and important uh, realm that we really need to penetrate because it takes us into a lot more kind of not only effectiveness, but also a deeper understanding of who we are as uh, as human beings and individuals. So you, you, you have all these really intense almost metaphors, but then I apply that same thing in and through to 
you know, two years in psychotherapy with one of my patients, trying to get them into a place where they're willing to open to that resistance, as you put it in the book, the resistance that's kind of been looming in their lives for so long. Right. I, I spend a lot of my time these days training uh, therapists to work with psychedelics, and hopefully they will become, at least psilocybin uh, will become legal in the next few years of mm-hmm. uh, trained practitioners. And uh, we need people to know how to responsibly use these very powerful tools. Uh, you know, and there's all kinds of medical applications, as you know, and mm-hmm. uh, end-of-life issues and treating depression and treating addictions, etc. cetera. Uh, not to mention the educational and religious Right. Uh, implications that these drugs also uh, have. Um, so we're really at the edge of a huge frontier. But when I think about uh, models in teaching, uh, what I've been leaning on more and more lately comes from uh, the philosophy of Carl Jaspers, or mm-hmm. Jaspers. Mm-hmm. I don't know if know him, a German existentialist, psychiatrist, philosopher. And he has this idea, if you go into the mind, you bump up against what the existentialists call boundary situations, grants situationen, you know, and that's stuff like guilt and grief and childhood traumas and whatever. But the idea is that they are portals. And if you go towards them and in them and through them with what Jaspers called philosophical faith, essentially the courage to trust, which helps if you're in a good therapeutic relationship, you know? So you go into that pain with a sense of courage and trust. And then, according to Jaspers, the unbedingte Forderung, this inner imperative, this energy called love, comes and meets you. And revelation and healing and all this wonderful stuff we yearn for in psychotherapy happens. But the way you get to all the positive stuff is by being willing to face the so-called negative stuff or painful stuff of life. But I, you know, the, my one, well, one question that comes to mind here is oftentimes I find that people aren't even aware that they have the resistance to the thing in the first place. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, it's not as if somebody comes in with an insight that says, hey, you know, I'm I'm really grieving the loss of whatever I'm grieving, and I need to go more fully into it. I mean, they, they're irrational. This is where Freud, I think, steps in and has a really good analysis of these defense mechanisms that kind of prevent us from, from actual, that are unconscious, that, quote, prevent us from leaning in and going in and through. Yeah, it is very common in psychedelic sessions for people to tap into unresolved grief or un- 
incompletely resolved grief, sometimes deaths that occurred 20 years ago, you know? And um, uh, that's not having a bad trip. Right. That's intensive psychotherapy. And it's amazing how powerful and effective it can be, you know? Were you training? Well, Sorry to interrupt, Bill. Work that's been sitting inside you, perhaps causing tense muscles and depression for a long time. And you're not even aware of it. Right. So when did you start training as a psychotherapist? Did the psychedelics uh, come first or second? Um... <laughs> it depends on how formal the training is, I guess. You know, I, I started my training with a little boy comforting my mother. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. Um, uh, good old Oedipal Complex. I did it well. Um, um, yeah, I went through theological studies. I thought I was going to be a minister. Uh, actually, I did become one, but then I, I left that uh, behind me as an identity um, and moved into psychology of religion and teaching and research in, in religion and uh, then became a clinical psychologist and decided if I wanted to... Uh, uh, work in this field and research, I had to have the magic letters of PhD behind my name. Mm -hmm. I had MDIV and STM, but they didn't cut it. You had to have PhD. <laughs> so I went through the hoops to get my PhD and uh, became a, a licensed clinical psychologist. Uh, so I've always had kind of one foot in the therapy world, the uh, medical, psychotherapeutic, psychiatric realm, mm -hmm. and one foot in the uh, uh, realm of uh, religion and spirituality. Young wrote a paper once that meant a lot to me that was, uh, I think it's titled Psychotherapy or Clergy, Psychotherapy and Clergy. And uh -huh. that, I've always f felt that, obviously, there's an understandable connection between what we call, you know, clergy and psychotherapists, and we're all kind of doing something similar. Yeah. One of my dreams is that the time will come when psychedelics are legal and used in the training of clergy. Yeah. You know, not, not, not a required course, to be sure, but an optional weekend workshop that you could get the academic credit for. Why not have some profound spiritual experiences so that when you get up in the pulpit, you really believe what you're saying, you know? Well, and it's funny because if you read Brian Murarescu's book or Carl Ruck's book or many books, they're, they're locating psychedelics and religion interwoven together in a way that can, almost can't be separated. It's we that have done the separating. That's right. And it's not only the psychedelic uh, molecule uh, in plants or herbs or uh, sacraments that you, but it's also 
um, the spontaneous mystical uh, revelatory experiences that have happened throughout history. Uh, and uh, there are people who simply have these profound experiences without ever taking a psychedelic, right. you know? So if we want to use the religious word of revelation, it happens both with and without psychedelics, you know? Mm-hmm. Happens in natural childbirth for some lucky women, you know? Etc. You know. So you just spontaneous mystical experiences. Yeah, you had one, and then uh, so Jeff Kripal writes about this. He says, you know, these uh, folks in our history have had these revelatory events, and then they spend their academic careers, whether uh, forward facing or not, working through whatever in the hell happened to them. We're talking some pretty big names in the field that had to write under pseudonyms just because they had to conceal these experiences because in the study of comparative religion, there seems to be a very firm line between experiencers and academics, but Uh, they become more muddy in the the reality. Yeah, why not both hands? That's right. That's right. So uh, you... uh, Teach mountain climbing. Why not climb some mountains? <laughs> well, and I guess it it comes down to our current worldview, doesn't it? That, that what we deem it's almost like current day. We don't allow for mystical experience. We want to write it off. You know, Jung wrote about in um, one of uh, volume eighteen. He was talking about if if Christ were born today, he'd be banalized and you know, would die under the burden of this fame that we, you know, or just penalized or criti- criticized. It, it It's like we can't leave the experience as it is. We have to take it apart. So it's it's kind of odd. We're fighting against a current day worldview when it comes to these experiences. Well, it, it stretches our concept of reality, you know, of who we are, who other people are, what the nature of, of reality is really. You know, uh, and that's the exciting thing for me on this frontier, where uh, the best of science is uh, is really encountering the sacred. You know, and we're trying to find words and concepts and ways of measuring, but these profound states of uh, call it revelation. You know. Mm. Uh, and there's many varieties there, from uh, encountering personal deities to the um, Hindu uh, drop of water merging with the ocean of uh, Atman Brahman unity, uh, but incredibly beautiful and profoundly meaningful states of mind. And they happen in all kinds of people. They especially are likely to happen in good you know, who are open, who don't, aren't trying to prove anything, but are just saying, well, I'll experience whatever comes and then I'll decide how to talk about it and think about it and categorize it, you know? Um, What counts, in my experience, working with many, many people of incredible variety, is the the choice to unconditionally trust 
Hmm. be founded in a good relationship and the openness to experience new things, you know? And those qualities are there. It really doesn't matter whether you went to Sunday school or not, you know? You know? Yes. It's that, uh, or whatever your world religion may be, it, it's not a matter of creeds and allegiance to creeds. It's a discovery of realms of experience within human consciousness. Mm -hmm. And it looks like they're there for everyone, you know? Well, going back to the 60s, 70s, but pre, what was it, like 1973, in Germany, you were operating pretty freely with these substances. I mean, there there was, you know, consideration yeah, and, and ethics, but there was no controversy. And so, would it was you... a perfectly reasonable thing to give a psychedelic to a graduate student, especially if he wrote up a good report. You know, <laughs> why not? It's a non-addictive substance. You know. It, it triggers very interesting states of consciousness. Why shouldn't it be part of your education? You know, how does the worldview that we have, and I, you know, I'm I'm speaking from the lens of saying kind of pre Nixon and post Nixon. How does the what happened with the war on drugs? How does that influence the people that you're working with? and some of their preconceived notions of these substances? Well, we're just getting over the craziness, the ignorance, the bias, the prejudice, whatever you want to call it, of the uh, 1960s, early 1970s, where uh, LSD was kind of, I think it became the symbol for a lot of social change you know, the Vietnam War, the change in the role of women, the, the change in sexual mores, um, and all that cultural change, the racial uh, changes in attitudes of moving towards integration. So, and I think all that kind of got condensed as LSD, if you will, you know? And uh, it became kind of the whipping boy, the the symbol of the culture. Mm -hmm. If we could just make LSD go away, we could go back to the good old days, you know? <laughs> and Back uh, to the good old days. Right, of ignorance, in, you know? <laughs> and, uh, you know, even government pamphlets were distorted in their information right. back then. If you look at some of them, uh, the idea that they, they cause psychosis, that they cause deformed babies, they'll make you jump off skyscrapers, uh, you, you know. And that was worked into some of the uh, television programs in that period, you know. Oh, my God, look, LSD, I'll never be the same, you know. Yeah, people, people really. Uh, there, it is that. I think you're right to say that. I mean, I know you are. That to say that people still are recovering. We're still recovering from those. The, the marvelous thing is that since we published our papers at Hopkins and other places, from um, you know the around what uh, 
2006 onward, the press has received the research findings in very level-headed, responsible ways. You know, and films have been made like uh, um, the recent ones on uh, uh, a new understanding, the science of psilocybin, mm-hmm. uh, the uh, recent one on uh, mushrooms, what's it called? Uh, uh, you kept quoting mana. Yeah, and mana, that was quite a while ago, but that was very well done. And uh, Oh, fantastic I, fungi. Fantastic fungi, that's what I... I mean, anyone can download those from their... Uh, from the web and watch It's one them. of the best documentaries I've ever seen. I, I, just irrespective of topic, it was such a... I was totally hooked. It's great, and it's beautiful. To- yes. <laughs> and, uh, you know, as you know, it goes from uh, mushrooms to our work with cancer patients and psychedelic at Hopkins at the end and so on. But uh, there are tools out there really educating the masses, hmm. you know, and that includes a very sane and receptive uh, FDA, you know. The, these are committees of people who want to ensure the mental health and safety of drugs for the, the nation, you know, and uh, they're very open-minded. They look at our data, you know. And they're not uh, pushing a political agenda, you know? Well, look, Bill, it's just you and me here. Uh, let's just speak. Yeah. Uh, uh, what's really going on there? I mean, is it is it complete red tape? How, how are the processes going regarding getting the FDA's approval to reschedule some of these substances? Are you getting a lot of traction? From all I have heard, uh, it's very uh, open, reasonable well-designed studies that are approved by the FDA. Right now we're focusing on treatment of depression with psilocybin, you know, mm-hmm. and traumatic stress disorder with MDMA, you know. And these studies are very well-designed and they're occurring at different sites throughout Western Europe and the United States and Canada, you know. And if the results are positive, I think it's quite... Uh, reasonable to assume that the substances will be rescheduled okay you know, and come off schedule what yeah well, that's good to hear i mean I, I, when i saw rick doblin's uh ted talk and you know of course for a lot of people that may be one of their first exposures but when he's talking through everything from you know ptsd depression anxiety and the numbers are incredible and right. I, you know there is that point in psychotherapy where I feel like we're, again, we're kind of bumping up against some of that resistance. And you can only intellectually say so much, you know, to somebody like again and again, hey, here we are again, we are at this, do you see this pattern? Or, you know, can we take another look at this? Um, But but to have the substance, it's totally subjective. And that that kind of takes us to a, an important area of this, which is to define some of those terms. The one you brought in earlier, which was spontaneous mystical experience. 
you know, mm-hmm. when when you hear a bunch of scientists writing about mystical experience, I just get excited because I think it's so <laughs> incredible yeah. that we're able to integrate these worlds. So what what do you think are the important terms for people to know if they're getting uh, into this landscape? Oh, there, we want to be sure to get that into the interview here. You know, uh, there's so many fascinating uh, <laughs> You did a great job defining it, though. I was very th- thankful for the way you tended to the terms. Mystical experience has become a scientific term. <laughs> it really is. And it's, it. not, it's not misty. It's not vague. It's yeah. not parapsychology, uh, fortune teller stuff, you know, with all due respect for that realm of research. Uh, by a mystical experience, and we have instruments to try to measure this, you know? Like you have a psychedelic experience or a spontaneous experience for that matter. And then you fill out this questionnaire and it it inquires about six categories that you read on a scale of intensity. First is a sense of unity, oneness, that uh, you felt you were part of something uh, unified, you know. Uh, could say much more. The second category is transcendence of time and space. That this state of consciousness felt eternal or infinite, intuitively. Mm-hmm. Third is objectivity and reality, or what William James called the noetic quality, intuitive knowledge, that it's not just an emotional state, beautiful as the emotions may be, but it's also a state of intuitive knowledge. Downloading. Yeah. What do you know? Well, Mm. some people, the common things that people say or, uh, you know, the reality of God or whatever your favorite noun is mm-hmm. for uh, the ultimate source, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, the immortality of the soul, the brotherhood of man, that we're all somehow interrelated within consciousness. Uh, the primacy of love. Um, that love isn't just a soupy... Uh, a human emotion, but it's a uh, intelligent, creative energy at the core of being. Hey, you may know. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it sounds wild, but you know, in uh, Dante's Divine Comedy, mm. uh, the very last line is: "It is love that moves the sun and other stars." Yeah, makes me suspect Dante had some spontaneous or moldy bread experiences. <laughs> <laughs> a little ergot in his beer. A little ergot in his beer. Who knows? Um, okay, then there's a sense of sacredness or awesomeness. Hmm. Uh, sort of what most people feel when they walk into the nave of a high Gothic cathedral or something. Regardless of your background, you just feel a certain sense of reverence, you know? And it goes with these states of consciousness. And positive mood, joy, peace, love, harmony, purity, you know? 
these profound emotions, and then always ineffability that there's the experience is, is beyond the limits of language. And if you try to talk about it, you tend to contradict yourself. Mm-hmm. I, but I've never been so alive. Uh, God was one, but he, he contained everything that is, you know? Uh, all the antinomies of philosophy, the one and the many, the male and the female, the, uh, et cetera, are, it's always both and, both and, instead of either or. Right. Okay. Uh, so it's very hard to talk about. There's a line in the Chinese scriptures, the Tao Te Ching, uh, those who know do not speak. Those who speak do not know, you know? Makes it hard to write papers about it. Right. I always feel like an asshole when I read that, you know? (laughs) They're trying to express something, you know? That's incredibly... All our research volunteers at Hopkins and elsewhere uh, dutifully write a report of their experience. They try to put it into words, but they always say this is... I'll do this because I promised to do it, but this is an absolutely impossible task. Right. Because there's so much that there's no way I can put it into language. You know, it's beyond beyond the growing edge of language. It's sort of like the things that quantum physicists deal with, I think. Mm How an atom can move from point A to point B without ever crossing the space in between. How, how does that happen? You know? It's funny to me because I, mean, I can't put into language the love that I feel for my wife and kids. You know, they, right. it, you know people, that makes total sense. But, but then it opens up a t- an entire study on language because language doesn't quite get what's in here. And it's certainly not whatever's in here is not measurable and quantifiable and replicable. But language is always stretching and growing, developing and changing. And uh, thank God we we got it. It comes in handy. (laughs) Sure does. But but we can't let it limit science. You know, the, um, as you may know, uh, I had the honor of being a research assistant to Abraham Maslow for a year and 1966 that was the year he came out with his book the psychology of science mm-hmm. and he talks about you know there's two flavors of science if you will that there's science that limits itself to what can be easily measured you know and ignores everything else and then there's what he called true science that focuses on the growing edge, the boundaries of human knowledge, you know? And that's the kind of science that we're doing with the psychedelics. I know. Why Why is this stuff not taught in school? <laughs> I don't know. I don't, what is wrong with us, man? <laughs> I didn't, you know, Maslow's writing about this stuff in 66. Like, I didn't get that in any, like, I had to find that from reading religion and, like, mystics. Like, I never got that in cognition and perception, you know? I, that's so frustrating. 
<laughs> Maslow is a good example of a natural mystic. Yeah. You know, he was really a Jewish mystic. Uh, never took psychedelics. He, he would have liked to, but he had a very acute heart condition. Mm-hmm. In fact, he died jogging at 62, you know? Mm-hmm. So we didn't want to take the risk of giving him a psychedelic uh, because of his cardiac uh, situation. But he really didn't need it. I, there were times where he could lie down in his backyard and the heavens would open up for him. Oh. You know, whether he opened, he generated his own dimethyltryptamine in sufficient dosage or whatever was going on biochemically. But he's writing in his books out of his own intuitive knowledge, out of his own experience. You know? So what were you guys thinking you were onto in the 60s and 70s? I mean, was, I, I just, I put myself in your shoes. I imagine y'all were just wildly excited and blown away by the potency of what, was, what you were seeing in these studies. Yeah. By, by, and the, well, as a therapist, you can appreciate just the profundity of participating, witnessing these incredible changes in perspectives. You know, working with cancer patients who uh, come in depressed, uh, just want to die and get it over with, uh, angry, hurt, don't want anyone to see them this way, you know. Etc., and they have a profound psychedelic experience, and all of a sudden they're preparing their families for their deaths. They're becoming essentially the social workers, uh, they're enjoying giving away their possessions to people, they're living until they die, you know. And you see, you see that over and over, you know. I'm glad you brought up that example because you've taught death and dying for many years. Yeah. And it, it, I find it's an interesting. I, I really resonate with your trajectory, Bill, because I'm just tipping into this place where I am feeling dra- drawn as, as far as called to working with death. And I, I was bawling my eyes out reading your chapter on death. And I'm so deeply connected with those moments uh, of, of somebody having a change of mind, having a, a shift in their reality that gives them that last moment. Even the woman that you wrote about two weeks in her life where she's able to then reconcile with her children, uh, situate her life, feel more expansive and broad. I mean, what a gift. E- I mean, even for that last moment of life, if you can have that kind of shift, I consider that to be one of the profoundest gifts that anybody could ever receive. Right. And why should it have to be at the last moment versus when a serious illness is first diagnosed or what Bob Jesse calls just using the drugs for the betterment of well people? Right. You know, why wouldn't it think what the world would be like if our attitude towards death really shifted to away from fear to kind of openness and curiosity, you know? Um, It would be a very different world. Grief work would be very different, you know? (laughs) 
This is probably the first, uh, I think, the first uh, legal application, in all probability, of the psychedelics is in palliative care. Uh, just last week, I had the honor of uh, uh, working at the uh, Aquilino Cancer Center in Rockville, uh, Maryland, just, just about a mile from FDA headquarters, actually, for whatever that's worth, where we're giving psilocybin in an FDA-approved research project to depress cancer patients, you know, in groups with uh, both group and individual preparation and integration to try to bring the costs down in the hopes that Medicare will cover it in a few years. You know, this is real and it's, it's happening now. I'm, you know, I'm very thankful that it is. Yeah. Well, I want to, I, mean, I want to put a pin right here because I do want to, I, I want to spend a good amount of time talking about this, but I also want to be able to define some of these terms that you're talking about. So far, there's mystical experiences. Um, what else needs to be defined? From yeah, another thing that needs to be defined, I think, is um, visionary, symbolic, archetypal experiences. And they are, if the mystical experience, by definition, is a unitive state of consciousness, you know? That's one kind of religious experience, if you will, mm -hmm. or spiritual experience. And it's incredibly profound. It's the goal of life for a good Hindu, uh, if not people of other religions as well, who are tuned into the mystical traditions in their faith, you know. But there are also these experiences of... Uh, Encountering uh, the Christ, the Virgin Mary, Kuan Yin, uh, uh, all kinds of gods and goddesses and precious stones and ancient civilizations and you name it that are incredibly awesome. Uh, where do they come from? You know? Are they genetically encoded in us? Are we accessing them spiritually somehow? We hardly know how to begin to talk about them. But they happen very reliably. And people experience content that's totally unexpected. It's not what they learned in Sunday school, mm -hmm. you know, or a Hebrew school or whatever. Um, uh, other cultures uh, and infinitely uh, detailed, vivid, convincing experiences, you know. Uh, I think it's empirical evidence, if you will, for Carl Jung's idea of the, co the collective unconscious, and that we carry the history of the race, if you will, within us, you know. But we can actually experientially explore it. Okay, that's pretty awesome. But there's usually a sense of the uh, the ego, the everyday personality, observing, watching, interacting with, beholding, participating. You know, in other words, these experiences are in the 
what philosophers call the subject-object dichotomy. It's not yet Mm -hmm. unitive, okay? But they're still incredibly profound. And the amazing thing for psychologists of religion is that most people seem capable of both experiences, the visionary realm and the unitive realm, you know? And you could even add another realm, uh, which is just uh, the world of conversion experiences, of psychodynamic resolution, if you will, of confronting guilt and grief and shame and uh, feeling a sense of forgiveness and new, new beginnings, you know? Well, I'm glad you brought Jung into it, because to me... Jung and Freud represent that core dual conflict that we see no matter what subject we get into. So you, because in the one hand, and this is not doing Freud a lot of justice, because what he was saying was not near as simplistic as this. But on the one hand, he's saying this is a wish fulfillment. This is a repetition compulsion of mother's breasts. You know, of see of seeking that kind of unitive consciousness is the same. Is is a, a desire to replicate the kind of unity you felt when you were suckling your mother's breast? I'm eager for your critique. <laughs> I wish I could give Freud and Jung. <laughs> I would, frankly, <laughs> I think good. They, they've learned some things, you know. Yeah. Poor Freud. I mean, let's give the man credit. He he rediscovered that there is an unconscious. Yeah. You know. I think the ancient Egyptians knew that, but we kind of lost touch with that, you know? You know? But he got hung up on cocaine, which was just the wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I was seeing Colin Hay. He's a, it's a singer-songwriter that I'm very fond of. My wife and I went to see him, and one time he said, you know, I, I haven't done drugs in a long time. It's been about 20 years since I've done cocaine. Cocaine makes you want to do a lot of lists. And I thought, hey, man, man, it makes you really productive and do a lot of lists. That's right. Yeah. That, was, that was Freud. Ta- Freud's taxonomy is making the lists. Of- He's addicted to cocaine who really loves. He cleans his apartment in back of the <laughs> I know, the illusion. But it does not give a, a sense of wisdom and enlightenment right. that the psychedelics can provide. Jung is another case. He, uh, Jung, from my perspective, almost got lost in the richness mm-hmm. of the symbolic world, the world of mythology and alchemy and uh, all these symbols from our dream life. Uh, and I suspect Jung himself did not have a therapist, uh, someone he could unconditionally trust to let go and, if you will, go beyond that realm, you know? So he wrote lots of words, you know? Uh, Very rich, very intriguing. Uh, But uh, the ineffable simplicity almost of the mystical consciousness. Uh, he sensed there was something there. He talked about the transcendent function, mm-hmm. for example. And uh, 
he knew there was wisdom within the psyche, you know. Uh, but he also was kind of stuck that you have to keep coming several days a week and spending lots of money for many years mm -hmm. <laughs> if you're going to make progress. Right. And he was very skeptical about psychedelics. And mescaline was legal mm -hmm. at that time. It was an interesting thing in the psychiatric world, but he, uh, he shied away from it personally because he would have to be out of control. You know, you're getting into his father yeah. complex. If we're going to talk about Oedipal complex, we got to talk about the father too. <laughs> That's right. You know, so you know, there's this metaphor of the uh, the seer pointing at the moon or the you know infinite mysteries of distant galaxies, and all the students are gathered around studying his finger. You mm -hmm. know, mm -hmm. and with Jung and Freud, we need to look where they were looking. Yeah in the direction they were looking and build on them, you know? They made very valuable contributions, but there's no need to be a, a true disciple. Right. No? I listened as a, I have a PhD in Jungian psychology, and I think I, I, I read, quote, Freudians, because I want to be held accountable to any dogmatism that can exist. And I, I, a friend of mine is a psychoanalyst, and I think his critique of Jung summarizes exactly what you just said. He said, he said, you know, Jungians tend to get lost in their own fairy tales. And I thought, yeah. bye, Jove. Yes, that's right. It is. That's right. That's right. And I, I, I mean, think... They're wonderful fairy tales. Oh, beautiful. I remember I, I went to the uh, Jung Institute in Zurich at one time, uh, interviewed... Uh, Oh, what's his name? Uh, Hillman. James Hillman. Hillman. James Hillman, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I was considering uh, studying there. and But I remember looking at their course catalog, and there was this course called Introduction to Fairy Tales. Mm -hmm. And it said in parentheses, for advanced students only. Always <laughs> 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 stayed with me. <laughs> <laughs> long, long gone from the crib. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, uh, def definition-wise, I like I like our process here. We kind of go out a ways and then come back to some of the defining terms. Uh, what else? Um. Let Let it be uh, said in any uh, podcast like this. Uh, there certainly are psychedelic experiences that are not helpful, yeah. you know? And the so-called bad trips, the real bad trips, I think, are panic and paranoia and confusion, you know? And they come from taking psychedelics without adequate preparation and guidance. You don't quite know what you're doing. And if you fight for control when the mind is opening up, you can very easily get paranoid, you know? Mm -hmm. So there's two big things we teach people before we give them a psychedelic. And one is to turn off the intellect, not to try to think during the experience, you know? So you kind of say to your intellect, Boy, you're clever, you're smart, you're wonderful, you got me through graduate school, uh, you're really neat. But you don't, 
you go out and play for the next six hours <laughs> while, I, while I collect these intuitive experiences. And when you come back in, I'll give you all these new experiences to play with. And you can take your knowledge of philosophy and comparative religion and physics and uh, depth psychology, and you can uh, categorize them any way you want, mm -hmm. you know. But while the experiences are occurring, intellect, you go out and play. Okay, that's step one. Step two is the willingness to trust your own mind, to choose to trust your own mind, and to receive, to confront, to dive into whatever emerges. So if something emerges that looks dark, scary, painful, you don't try to run away from it. Mm -hmm. If you do, you get paranoid. It comes chasing you. If you run away from the monster, you know what happens. We've all done that in our nightmares. Yep. You know, you wake up in a cold sweat and you're scared to go back to sleep. Yep. Well, what are you running from? From psychedelic research, we would say it's something in your mind that would like to teach you something, mm -hmm. but you're not ready for the lesson. Okay? So if something dark or scary emerges, you meet it as rapidly and directly as you can. You go towards the monster. You look him in the eye. You uh, embrace the dragon. In the ayahuasca communities, there's this line, what do you do if you meet the great anaconda serpent? What you do, you dive into his mouth and look out through his eyes. Yeah. You know? And it becomes your shakti, your kundalini, if you will. You know? Because, you know, it's meaningful. It's part of you. Don't run away from it. Go towards it. Become it. Befriend it. Tame it. You know? So that's why you need to be in a good relationship. That if you start getting scared, you reach out and you hold the hand of your therapist. You know? And that interpersonal grounding is incredibly supportive and helpful in tumbling through sometimes very painful experiences. But as you said, in and through, it's in route to resolution and healing. Well, it seems like right there, there's no better example of a, of kind of a sociocultural fractal that if we're to do that individually in our own, whether it's dreams or psychedelic experiences, what in the world were you thinking when the the kind of power authorities came in and said, ah, oh, this stuff is really bad. And in fact, you're going to freak out and you're going to like jump off a building we we seem to have that same desire of running away from what scares you happening geopolitically with the relationship to psychedelics and consciousness in the 60s and 70s. What, yeah. what was it like watching that? You know, another piece of that repression, I think, was the embarrassment 
of the American government in the psychedelic research, alleged research that they had done trying to use the drugs for warfare or interrogation, giving the drugs to people without any preparation. Um, And that research did not go well. And it was an embarrassment, you know, to the government, you know. Those researchers were not willing to come to us who were doing research with psychedelics and psychotherapy to learn how to use them wisely. They were only interested in their so-called military potential, okay? And that blew up in the government's face. And I think that was one factor in the repression of the psychedelics. Mm -hmm. Uh, They weren't interested in their use in psychotherapy or medicine. They just wanted them to go away, you know? Um, so I just wanted to note that along the road here, you know? Well, it, it, if I could expand it even further, it seems that, you know, again, these these dual conflicts that show up, whether it's Freud and Jung or, you know, uh, idealist and materialist, it it seems as if one of the conflicts that was happening is is that is, is a materialistic understanding of consciousness versus a, uh, a a more unitive frame of consciousness. Were people? Of course, they were. I mean, I don't know my question there. I just I just want to note this and maybe to open up the conversation about it because. It seems as if one's understanding of consciousness comes online when we're looking at subjects like this. Frankly, we don't have a clue, really, about what consciousness is. You know, <laughs> you know, uh, we, uh, some of my colleagues at Hopkins don't want to even use the word, even though we're the center for consciousness and psychedelic research. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's it's just one of those you can dissect an awful lot of brains, and you can't find a person anywhere. Hey, what an know? identity crisis! Yeah, you know, well, what is this stuff <laughs> consciousness? But we know that we are. Yeah. You know, we each of us knows that we have a self. We experience things. Uh, we dream. No. What's the relation between the brain and that experience? Right. Uh, we can look at the brain. It has literally trillions of synapses. Mm-hmm. You know, who, who knows what, uh, actually, just this morning, I was talking with my friend Robin Carhart Harris at Imperial College in mm-hmm. London. Great and research. he came up with these wonderful concepts that psychedelics uh, open up communication between different parts of the brain mm-hmm. that they help reset the brain, if you will, you know, uh, and those are incredibly helpful uh, ideas, and there's certainly uh, validity to them, but they are so totally simplistic <laughs> when you look at the real complexity of the brain, and then what's a brain? <laughs> break it down. From, uh, in the language of physics, you know, yeah. uh, what, what's happening in the brain of a corpse? 
you know, anything. We, we really don't know. You know, what is the ultimate nature of matter? There, we're, we're moving into the realm of philosophy. Right. And science is just uh, touching the edges of it right now, you know? I love this somewhere. Bernardo Castrup said something about Nature Magazine putting out the three questions that have not been answered by science, and they are, what is matter, what is consciousness, and how does the body and mind interact? And the answer is we have, we have no idea. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we've been working on the mind-body pro- problem for uh, we, we haven't solved it yet, you know? And maybe our, our minds, our brains, or whatever, maybe we're just too primitive to be able to articulate it, or our language and conceptual science hasn't developed enough to be able to uh, approach it with scholarship yet, you know? Uh, something is, I don't I hope I'm not jumping far afield, but something you said a minute or maybe 10 minutes ago. Um, it, it's about the the part of our consciousness that is, I forget the way you said it, but seeking health. And the, the thing I wanted to explore with you is psychedelics and morality. Mm-hmm. The idea that, but, because there is a large question mark that if, is, these aren't some substances that automatically create moral humans, but there does seem to be a relationship between psychedelics and love and connection, but in the, in the academic world, this conversation of morality gets a bit dicey. Yeah. Well, you know, you know, Augustine, who says love and do whatever you want, you know, (laughs) (laughs) know? (laughs) but if indeed, you know, there are many psychedelic experiences, you know, and, and not everyone is profoundly mystical with a sense eternal love at the core of being. But if you have enough sessions, chances are that kind of experience will happen eventually for many people, okay? When it does, there is this conviction, intuitive, it could be a big delusion, you know? But it's pretty convincing when you're there that love is really uh, an ultimate form of the energy that makes up the world. That sounds terribly poetic, you know. Uh, But if that, insofar as that is true, as is reflected in in a lot of literature and so on, um, then you could argue that there's a basis for ethics that's built into human consciousness. Mm -hmm. Okay? And so uh, take the typical uh, heroin addict. If he has a mystical experience that includes the sense of love, of belonging to the family of man, of creative resources within him, after that experience, he can't pretend to be worthless anymore. Mm -hmm. He can't pretend to be isolated, not belonging to humanity. He can't feel that he doesn't have the inner resources to confront whatever he's running away from in his addiction. 
Okay? So you begin to see how powerful these experiences can be in changing human behavior. Because it changes your concept of who you are and what you're capable of, and also who other people are. Mm. You know? if, if they're really your brothers and sisters, you can't go and rob them on the street for money for your drugs. You know? Yeah, I, 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 I hope all people and there's have an, that experience. There's an ethical system that starts to emerge. Right. One untapped frontier in psychedelic research is intensive therapy with psychedelics for young so-called sociopaths. Mm-hmm. You know? People yeah. who don't have much sense of guidance direction, values. What if they can discover some of those principles within themselves? I think about that, those Bowlby experiments and what Harlow and Ainsworth and Bowlby were doing. But importantly, I think it's Bowlby with the the one scene when he would he would take the rhesus monkey out of the community and raise it on its own for about four to six weeks and then try to reintroduce it and it didn't go well. You know, they, they would bully it, kick it out, try to expel it. But if that, you know, expelled monkey were matched with an infant monkey and some of those seemingly inborn characteristics of grooming and connecting and allowing for somebody to kind of be nurtured and nurtured, uh, all of a sudden something comes online and then they learn social skills and can kind of then be reintroduced. But that's what I think of when I think of somebody who has never been able to have the love, connection, reflection, uh, emotional regulation, what do they do? Well, everybody becomes an object. Is there, is there, um, are there good studies coming out in this territory with sociopathy? Uh, not yet. Uh, that we is need compelling. you to get one yeah. going. <laughs> yeah. That's really compelling stuff. Yeah. Well, when you think of the status quo, the number of people we have imprisoned in our country, which is shameful, it's more than anywhere in the world, you know, even though it's been improving a little bit. Uh, If you think of the number of people disabled because of depression and addiction, you know, and how inadequate the best mental health procedures we can offer are mm-hmm. really impacting it. Um, if the wise use of psychedelics really is a frontier in mental health care, it looks quite probable. And we can uh, impact these conditions more powerfully and effectively than in the past. Instead of taking Prozac for the rest of your life, you have an experience with one administration of psilocybin. And it is the memory of that experience that enables you to essentially not be depressed. That's a whole new concept in psychiatry. 
you know? Well, I've got a, I want to be respectful of time and I've got a number of questions that I want you to. Go ahead, man. (laughs) (laughs) So the, the first, uh, just these very typical critiques, uh, you know, cause I, I read somewhere and you're in the medical world. You can probably help me out. I think that the amount of time it takes for, um, innovation in medicine and research to reach the the masses is a number of like 10 or 12 years. I read some study that says it's just like takes the age of the dinosaurs for it to kind of seek its way into the population. So when we think about this lineage that we're in with an enormous amount of misinformation on these substances and and also a culture that doesn't really have rites of passage that are interwoven into our developmental milestones which i think is a, a terrible problem what there the two core questions that come up in critique are the first which is it's just people that want to get high you know all you, all you want to do is get high and the second is that um, hang on, I want to look at it because I want to be sure I get it. Um, God, where'd it go? We'll stick with that for a second, and then I'm going to come up with the second one. So, oh yeah, I remember it. It's um, that psychedelics are a way of spiritual bypass. Uh, from a spiritual lens, it is it is a way of it is like a shortcut. So, would you address yeah. those two questions? I would love to. Um, it... <laughs> The only way you get high with psychedelics is glory to God in the highest and <laughs> on earth peace, good will. If you want to call that high, okay. Uh, but it is not the typical marijuana high. It doesn't take you away from your problems. It takes you into the co- in and through the core of your problems. Actually, we gave psychedelics to... Uh, narcotic addicts, and then we asked them to compare them. And the answer almost invariably was heroin takes you away from your problems to a temporary warm bath, you know? But then it wears off and the problems are still there. Mm-hmm. Psychedelic takes you in and through the core of your issues, but it connects you with inner resources you never knew you had. Okay, so no, this is so, if you want to get high, psychedelics are not the right drugs. You know, but there are a bunch of kids, I mean, uh, you know. that, that they, They take very low doses and they giggle and they, some never close their eyes and they run around and they dance. And they might have interesting, cool experiences and get a little bit paranoid now and then, you know. But that is nothing um, close to what the therapeutic use of these substances can be with adequate purity and dosage and a supportive set and setting, preparation, skill guidance. It's a whole different scene, you know. There are people who have dropped acid 200 times and never had either a psychodynamically helpful experience or anything we would call genuinely spiritual, mm-hmm. you know? 
Yeah, it, it, back to that rites of passage thing. I, I, I tend to think that sex, drugs, and rock and roll is the world right. of the adolescent, not only because of the need for adolescents to take risks and push up against boundaries. And it's it's kind of that stage of life where it's like, <laughs> like scratch at it, pick it apart, see how it works, tell it to fuck off, you know, just do whatever you can to uh, either approach or avoid it. And, you know, these kids I've worked with, I used to work in an adolescent residential treatment facility. And of course we had a bunch of kids. Everybody there had what's called comorbid disorders where they were doing drugs, and also there were some kind of uh, depression or personality disorders or latent personality disorders. And I, I kept thinking that, like, these kids have never been instructed about their mind, about culture, about trust, and about value, and how to connect, and how to communicate. And they're out there using all these substances, including LSD and psilocybin, and and they're not they're not doing it right. I think that's. There are occasional kids who, uh, who knows what the variables are: a secure childhood or uh, the right setting or whatever, do have incredibly profound experiences. Right. You know, um, but uh, it's not the stereotype. It's not the uh, the mainstream. Yeah. Uh, in the. I remember once uh, <clears throat> traveling to the West Coast and stopping in a uh, uh, a place uh, beside the road, and there were all these stereotypical hippies in there, you know, with their long hair and their beads, and their and I was dressed in East Coast garb. And I remember quietly thinking, boy, I bet I know more about LSD than any of them. They wouldn't know it. <laughs> it's kind of incognito. Yeah. Okay, then before we run out of time here, spiritual bypassing. Yeah. Uh, a spiritual, uh, when a real spiritual experience happens, you know it. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it's triggered by psychedelics or sensory isolation, or natural childbirth, or creative performance, or the runner's high, you, you, you name it, you know? When it happens intuitively, you know it happened. In fact, one of the uh, most meaningful responses uh, to my book have been letters from people who have had spontaneous experiences of a mystical nature, but have never shared them with anyone because they're afraid people will think they're crazy. And somehow my book gives them a language to talk about what they have treasured most deeply in their lives, you know? And they they thank me for it, you Mm -hmm. know? Um, Spiritual bypassing is a word that has a lot of different meanings. I just read an essay that applied it to uh, uh, meditative communities that uh, get around and uh, focus on their navels and they ignore the uh, hungry people in the streets out there. You know, mm-hmm. that's also spiritual bypassing, you know. But, but however these spiritual experiences happen, they need to be integrated. They need to be applied to everyday living. And that's what we call integration, you know. And people integrate in different ways. 
writing, uh, meditating, uh, hiking, dancing, uh, exploring relationships, uh, on and on and on, you know? And uh, that's what religious communities really could foster. Yeah. A community of supportive people who help you on the life journey. And no matter what happens in your inner states of consciousness or the everyday world of uh, work and relationships, you, you, you have a supportive community to um, deal with those life experiences and get some wisdom out of them, mm-hmm. you know? So uh, uh, it's not Houston Smith, uh, beloved, a companion of mine, scholar of comparative religions, who just died a few years ago in his late 90s, and made the distinction between religious experiences and religious lives, you know? Mm-hmm. That the goal isn't just to have experiences, but it's to live out of those experiences. And that's why we need religions, you know? Uh, but having said that, it's great if your religious life includes some first-hand religious experience, you know? Totally. Yeah. So I know we're coming to a close, but when you reflect on your experiences in psychedelics and consciousness, how do you think these, and this is so simple, but how do you think these substances have affected you, have influenced your life, I mean, for better or for worse? Um, well, I certainly consider it a positive effect in my case. I think at the very beginning, it made me... Uh, more what Maslow would call inner-directed, you know, not a puppet of social forces, but uh, someone who would uh, make my decisions from within myself. Uh, And also uh, uh, more time-competent, more focused in the present instead of ruminating about the past and worrying about the future. You know, uh, the whole theme in many spiritual traditions is really being present. That the door to the eternal isn't just before birth and after death, but it's in the middle of the present moment. If you can wake up, you know, that makes a lot of sense to me. So you can have profound spiritual experiences while your heart still beats and your lungs still breathe. And you can apply them to your daily living. And I think that's what the whole meditative yogic uh, prayer world is really oriented towards. Amen. You've answered my, when I talked with both my brother and my wife, I said, you have any questions for Dr. Richards? My brother said, I want to talk to him about, I want to ask him about integration. And my wife says, how have psychedelics affected his life? the influence so i'm they are on behalf of them thanks for answering and behalf of myself thanks for answering all these questions i guess in closing 
What are you guys working on right now at Hopkins? Uh, who knows? <laughs> All of a sudden we have expanding staff and new funding and uh, um we're moving in all kinds of new directions, early Alzheimer's disease, to see if a psychedelic experience might be helpful. We're starting to work with eating disorders. Mm-hmm. Um, those are frontiers. Um, continuing work with addictions, alcoholism, narcotic addiction. Uh, we've done a lot of work with nicotine addiction. Psilocybin therapy appears to be the most potent and effective treatment out there if you're having trouble stopping smoking, you know? And that has immense health ramifications. Yeah. Well, keep up the good work. Yeah. And uh, and we're also, you know, I've just finished a study with uh, Tony Bosses at NYU on... uh, working with uh, professional religious leaders, uh, what might be the value of these experiences for uh, kind of normal, healthy uh, people. Uh, And uh, we shall find out. Well, anything else before we close out? Any other little threads that are hanging out? (laughs) There will be threads hanging out. uh, Go to the web. We, you know, uh, there are more and more studies coming. If you just go to clinicaltrials.gov, you know, there are at least 50 studies with psilocybin approved right now by the FDA. You know? Well, I'll, I'll include all these uh, resources and I'll certainly mine through all the stuff you've got online and and look below on the resource page for those of you watching or listening, and you'll see a bunch of links with uh, with all kinds of cool stuff that we've talked about. Besides Hopkins, I mean, there are centers opening up all over the world, really. Right. Uh, Imperial College, London, uh, NYU, Yale, Harvard, um, University of Wisconsin, University of California, in San Francisco and Los Angeles. And uh, even in places like uh, Texas and Nebraska and uh, um, research is burgeoning yeah. throughout the world. And uh, it, I don't think the genie's going to be stuffed back into the problem. <laughs> I hope not, man. Yeah. I hope not. You know, a bit of caution. These drugs have been around uh, since at least 500 B.C., maybe longer, you know? And they emerge in cultures and they get suppressed and they emerge and they get suppressed, you know? Right now in our modern 21st century world, they're emerging. And let's hope we have the wisdom to use them responsibly and that we don't get frightened by the nature of our own minds, but instead really explore them and learn from uh, the realms within us that would teach us some things if we can be humble and open. Wise words. Well, Bill, thank you. Hang out for a second, but I'm, I'm really grateful for the time that, uh, that you donated to this process here.
My pleasure. Until next time. What you're doing, John. Thanks, man. Persuades your thoughts